Welcome to Grief is My Side Hustle, the podcast. I'm your host, Megan Reardon Jarvis. And today I have with me my friend and colleague, Liz Gleason of Shapes of Grief. Liz, welcome. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks, Megan. I'm delighted to join you here. Liz, tell, tell folks about who you are in the world and your work and what brings you um, into the space of grief and loss. Yeah, sure. So I'm a grief therapist. I'm based in Ireland, but I work online. So I've been working with people from all over Europe, really, for a number of years. I work clinically just with grief and loss. So I guess that's quite unusual. I decided to specialize in that area because I saw such a deficit. If the States is like Ireland, if you go on to any psychotherapist website and they're specializing in bereavement and anorexia and gender issues and sexuality, and I just thought, how can somebody possibly really know the ins and outs of all of these subjects? And I just feel that grief is such a lonely place for so many people. And I suppose, you know, wounded healer, right? We, we're all drawn to, to stuff that needs healing in ourselves. Wouldn't it be nice to be able to step into that space and offer, you know, offer that holding, that safe harbor for people who are feeling incredibly isolated in their grief because so few people really understand it. So that's a long way of saying I'm a grief therapist. I, I work in Ireland. I started the podcast on Shapes of Grief a little bit more than two years ago and again born out of the same frustration of how few people understand grief you know client after client would show up in my office saying I had no idea it was like this I had no idea and I just thought okay how do we start spreading the word to more people what grief is like you know how terribly lonely it is how discombobulating it can be how do we spread the word and once of course I started the podcast I realized it's not just me there's so many people out there yourself included who are trying to make people more aware of what grief is what the depth and breadth of the experience of it do you have an idea from your clinical work why we are so undereducated as a population about this concept? Because what you and I have said before in previous conversations is people come in completely shocked to discover X, Y, and Z symptoms that to you and I as clinicians are just run-of-the-mill symptoms, not to be disrespectful about grief, but when people come in and say, I can't think straight, or I haven't slept in days, and they're really, to some degree, terrified about, about how significant some of their symptoms are. Do you have an idea why folks who are grown folks are only learning this through their own, when, I mean, it honestly happens to everyone? Yeah, I mean, I have an opinion on that. I think it's our Western developed, I say, in inverted commas, civilizations. I think we've whitewashed over everything. We've eliminated grief from our everyday conversations. We've eliminated birth from our communities and put it into hospitals. We've put death into hospitals and taken it out of the home. We've put sexuality underground. We've put gender identity underground. And we've created some sort of Truman show, which yeah. we're all living in. <laughs> yeah. And in the Truman show, there isn't space for many things. 
you know, it's all sunshine and positive living and sunny side up. And I, I think when we look at other civilizations that wouldn't be considered Western developed societies, they do grief really well. They do sexuality really well. They do gender variance really well. I think particularly in the last hundred years, we've created some sort of false norm which has eliminated them from society. And in, in doing that, we've eliminated the essence of life, birth and life and death and diversity and difference. We've just developed some weird society where I think many of us go, I don't fit in because I'm gay. I don't fit in because I'm grieving. I don't fit in because I'm non-binary. I don't fit in because I'm a woman. I don't fit in because I'm black. Who actually fits into the society that we've created? That's me going on my big social spiel. The phrase that popped into my head is that one that comes from the Christian tradition of, of you know, cleanliness and godliness or something that the idea that for whatever reason, Western cultures like the idea of bright and shiny and clean and tidy rather than, you know, sort of the glorious mess of life. In doing that, we have really created this sort of this secondary sense of isolation and sometimes shame for people that they're having such a hard time. One of the things I use in my writing a lot, which is it was always gonna be this way. This isn't about you doing it right or wrong. This is about how unbelievably hard this is. So let me ask a question about that. In your clinical experience, personal experience, whatever you wanna call on, what do you think is the hardest part about fresh grief? And you and I, again, also know that there are different ways that we come to grief, that we don't compare traumas and loss. I'm curious just in, in terms of when taking someone in for the first time, what do you think is the trickiest bit for, for them to navigate? What's coming to me is almost every new person who's freshly grieved or freshly looking for support, because it's not always just in, in fresh grief, is just this, it's like an existential loneliness where they have this emotion bottled up inside and it begins to spill out because they can't help themselves. They're finally seeking support. They start apologizing and taking out the tissues and trying to push it back in. And it's like, God, when did we stop making this normal? When did we stop making crying a normal experience? And it's so sad. I sometimes say to people, this is like the equivalent of needing to pee and you are holding it in and you're crossing your legs and somehow it's all going back up into your body and it feels toxic and rotten. You know, it's such a normal biological necessary response that people somehow keep in because you know we've all these expressions stay strong oh my god hey I hate as much as I hate love and light you know um stay strong why there is strength in showing your vulnerability you know if this is normal there's nothing weak about crying it's a normal biological response and your body needs to do this it's a really important release for the body so that's one of the first things that I find really gets my compassion is people thinking that they're somehow wrong or it's somehow shameful to cry because all the messages are out there saying 
you know, succeed, excel. We're being told that we're no good unless we excel at something. And somehow crying is telling us you failed at everything and now you're crying. Somehow that's the interpretation that's being internalized from the society that we live in. Right. You know, people are really uncomfortable with it. You know, we we keep it underground. People try to fix it, make it better. I had someone who came to see me just today and she said, oh, you're the only person I can talk to about this. And I said, well, you've close friends. Why? And she said, because everyone else just jumps in and tries to fix it. We're so uncomfortable with other people's suffering, probably because we're uncomfortable with our own suffering that we can't bear it. So we want to cover it up and fix it and solve it and throw advice at it. Right. And that somehow that has become the definition of showing up in a loving way that I'm going to come. And somehow from my experience or my knowledge that I'm going to have something better than what it is that you need to navigate and grow. And there are a million different Uh, metaphors for grief. The one that I use a lot with clients is the idea that like only you can run your own marathon, right? It doesn't matter if someone else has really good skills and what they think works and sneakers that they like and power gels that they take. You have to figure out how to do it on your own. Part of what I'm hoping for the podcast, because exactly what you've just described, you know, what frustrates me is take your little medicinal hour, you know, and go to your therapist and cry and talk about how sad you are and then zip it back up and come back up to life and just titrate out a little bit. Otherwise it's going to be weakness. Otherwise it's going to be too much. And we're going to see it as a problem and we're going to try to fix you. You and I know that that just pushes people into that sense of isolation, but every place that we can talk about, no, it really is as bad as you think it is. It really is overwhelming. It could overwhelm you for a while, We don't know that it's three months or six months or a year that when people are saying I'm still having nightmares three years later, I'm like, yeah, that sounds about right to me. That doesn't mean that there aren't treatments that we, that people can get and support that they could get that maybe will help resolve some of what's going on. The idea that it exists does not mean you are failing as a griever. What we, what we know is there's not enough room to sit down and actually just grieve. So that idea that I'm going to come to you with my expertise, rather than say like a coach, you're going to be able to do this because everybody has to do it at some point in their life. Yeah. And I think it depends, Megan, as well. I think everything you're saying is true for a certain percentage of people, but it is really important to say the research shows us that most people like 60% of people who go through a bereavement will be okay. They will feel it to greater or lesser degrees and they will manage their grief. They will accommodate their grief. They will integrate their grief and they will never go back to normal, but they will move forward and they will be okay without any intervention from anyone. Now we know that most people, 100% if you like, most people do need community support and information and just acknowledgement that there's been a loss an acknowledgement that it's tough or it can be tough, but only 40% of people need additional support. And I think it's important for us to say, when you're talking about nightmares three years down the line, or it's brutal, or it's really hard, 
not necessarily for everyone, but for a certain percentage of people. We kind of know who as well, you know, when there's sudden losses, if it's a parental bereavement, so a child dies, if there's been an ambivalent relationship, you know, there's certain factors that kind of can make the grief really, really tough the way you're describing it. I suppose because of my own recent loss, you know, dad is he's six or seven weeks dead now. I'm really one of the 60%. This is sad. I miss him. He was my rock and my harbor. And I'm okay. Really important to say um, that grief, like sexuality or gender, is on a spectrum. And we all have different responses to grief. But equally, we all have different responses to different griefs in our own lives. So I would say my grief response to my father dying feels really manageable and I feel really accepting of his death for a number of reasons and a number of factors. Whereas when I separated five years ago and went through that, it was hell on earth. It was discombobulating, it was activating, it was traumatizing in certain ways. Nobody sent me cards then or made me dinner, whereas we recognize death to be a loss and everybody's flooding me with flowers and cards and dinners now when maybe I don't need it so much. I mean, it's lovely. Don't stop sending them. But I really could have done with that years ago, but nobody recognized my separation as a big loss in my life. This is really important to mark. Everybody responds differently to loss and each loss that that individual experiences will evoke a different response as well. That's beautiful and and so important. And I think validating for people who are going to be listening because part of what you're saying is you are the person that defines your loss not the relationship. When I both have clients who it's complicated when their mother dies because their mother was abusive and someone might come in with, oh my God, you need so much time off, but actually it was way worse when their dog died. And so really we are the people who define what this is for us. I have sat with clients and walked through how do we stay in a space where we feel validated when that's what people's intention is? People are intending to show up for me in what they believe is pain, but they're actually minimizing me and reminding me I didn't have a great relationship with my mom because they're coming at me with this intensity and love. And actually that's not my experience. My experience isn't just pure grief. It's more complicated because yeah. That grief is, I I lost this relationship a long time ago. And again, there's all this vocabulary and language that when we are able to talk about it so people can hear about it, they then can hold on to those stories as saying, oh, this is more quote unquote normal, meaning I don't need to pathologize this process for myself. So how do I define it for me? And I love what you just said, because a lot of people who are like in their 20s, and they are in loving attachment relationships in that developmental period of trying to figure out who they are. When they lose that relationship, they lose that sense of who they are. And so it's traumatizing, not everybody, but it's traumatizing in a way that doesn't make any sense to them. They can't understand it. Again, part of it is just validating. This is, this is what this feels like for you. It is this intense. It is this bad. It is this terrible you and I have been in touch and I am so sorry to hear about your dad, but also the process that you participated in was really beautiful 
in a way that you could show up for yourself and show up for the, the death and the loss all at the same time, which probably is not the traditional Western way of being able to do things, right? As, yeah. I mean, I know all the banana skins that you can possibly slip on. I think particularly in times of pandemic, I would cancel some people who have loved their have lost their loved one during the pandemic when they haven't been able to be with them in hospital or through COVID. And you're left sitting with the questions of, well, who was with them? Were they scared? Did they miss me? Were they wondering where I was? What were their last words? We know that when you don't have information, you tend to imagine the worst. As you and I talked about in our trauma and grief podcast on shapes of grief, it's not what happens a lot of the time. It's the meaning we make of it sort of determines our experience of grief. I suppose for me, I thought I've had a rough five years post-separation, like really rough I don't want another rough five years. When dad dies, I just don't want it. Part of me was therefore going, what choices do I have in this? You know, what are the choices available to me in terms of how I make meaning of this? And it was really interesting because, well, I'm not a sun, sunny side up person. I am the most realist you will ever find. And, and like I said, love and light scares me. But it was like, what's real here? And what was real was he's at home. I'm with him. He doesn't have COVID. He's not suffering. Every day the hospice would ring. How is it today? It's fine. He's not agitated. He's at peace. He didn't have a secondary illness, which is quite unusual. My father died of old age. There was not another illness causing symptoms that were hard to manage. He was still kind of cracking jokes like three days or four days before he died. He'd barely been speaking. He hadn't been drinking for a number of days. And one of his care assistants said to Morris, would you like some water on your lips? And he, through closed eyes and a half-closed mouth, he said, if you can spare it. You know, he was joking. And her and I were cracking up laughing and looking at each other going, typical. He's still cracking jokes, literally on his deathbed. So for me, it was a question of, I'm going to look for all of these things that will help me make meaning of his death. And there was an acceptance of death is pretty ugly. It's not that pretty. Is birth ever beautiful? Is death ever beautiful? I'm not sure about that. It's awesome in the mm. way I use the word awesome rather than Americans. Yeah. It, it strikes, oh, it's awesome to see a body come into the world. It's awesome to see a body leave the world. And I think to courageously show up and just look straight in the face was kind of the approach that I took to stay right there in it so that there was no gaps. Mm. There was no gaps where I would have to put in a meaning because I didn't have it. I was there all the time. Here's what's happening now. Here's what's happening in this present moment. And as he was dying and I sat beside him and I was inches away from his mouth, and it was so clear these were his last breaths. Yeah. I remember what my thought process was, drop it into me, drop in the love, drop in the humor, drop in the kindness. I'm sucking it in. I'm not going to go from 
I want it right now. I want your humor right now. I'm breathing it in. It's going right into my heart. And that's how I managed that. It was like literally sucking in his last breaths right into my heart and finding him there right now. I suppose part of me is trying to bypass the grieving process, but you know what? It's working for me. And I think we are more resilient. We are more emotionally intelligent. I, at this stage of my life, have been through a lot of things and therefore choices are available to me that may not be, have been available to me 10 years ago. I, I think that's really important as well as just this resilience piece, yeah. not to use it as a way of bypassing grief, but also to acknowledge that we don't have to crumble in the face of grief. Yeah. It doesn't have to be brutal. And yes, it can be for many people, but there are choices also. And how can we find them so that we don't suffer? Because I think it's when we don't have access to that resilience or those, we really suffer. But when we can just feel grief as a sadness, it's a very pure emotion and it's very manageable. I think you might be talking about existentially one of the most important energetic processes, which is that we have to have some sort of sense of agency in how we participate in the experiences of our own lives. So everything that you were just describing was choosing to participate in your father's death. Every minute of it, every moment of it, you and I sort of share this, uh, this concept of like the energy of something. And when you were talking, sort of consuming his breath and his spirit, I remember sitting in a biology class a million years ago and the teacher talking about how bodies gain and lose weight and talking about it in terms of energy. And I raised my hand and was like, okay, so when someone loses 50 pounds, where do the pounds go? you breathe them out. They become energy out into the world. And I remember getting a shiver at that moment and being like, oh my God, we really are just energy. And when I lost my mom, my mom was a big gardener. And when she died, hours after she died, I kept touching her things. I couldn't stop sort of touching her things. I don't know what I'm doing, but I sort of just trust that this is my process. And when I went outside, all I could see were the hours of her footprints out in her garden, watering her garden and being in her garden. And I still think of that, like her, her cemetery plot does not have any energy for me. Uh, her garden, the space around her home where she has thousands and hours of her life pressed into the earth. If I was going to consume something back, that's where I think of her. And I energetically sort of experience her because my dad, when he died in 2017 of cancer, I got to participate in that death. And so I was very aware and very alert and very knowledgeable about what kind of cancer he had and the likelihood of how it would impact his body. So I felt like I had a lot of choice. I could show up and be and spend time with him. My, because my mom died suddenly, it felt more like something that happened to me and I had to make my choices afterwards. It doesn't mean when something suddenly happens that you don't have any choice, but your choice about how you make meaning has to come after. 
the phrase I use a lot is like, it's ringing like a Tibetan singing bowl, you know, cause you hit that and it rings for, it rings for minutes mm-hmm. afterwards. Your system can be really overwhelmed. It can have when, when something happens to you in a sudden way, as opposed to you choose to participate in it. And again, mm-hmm. I don't know that in the common sort of lexicon of grief that we do a great job of even just describing those two sort of poles around what to expect around that. How does that feel? And, and, you know, for people who participate in the process, their brain is still online and they're making meaning in the moments. And so they're looking at dad. Every time I saw my dad, as he was dying, I hugged him with the intention of saying goodbye because I believed it could be the last time I saw him. I can't tell you for sure what the last thing my mother and I said to each other was, although I'm pretty sure she told me to literally quotes, get your fucking dog out of here. I'm pretty sure that's the last thing my mother said to me, but I didn't have that capacity to participate. So maybe I'm curious about this. Like when people, when you are working with people who are in the grieving process, they're in the process of losing a marriage, that they're in the process of losing a parent, that they're, they have a child who is likely going to die. How, how do you coach them? What is the way that you try to show up for folks who are still in the process to maybe help them prevent some of the elements of it that can be traumatic if we don't have the agency? I suppose there's 7 billion different answers because there's 7 billion people on the planet. You know, it's so different for everyone. When we talk about fresh grief, it's really interesting because people are talking to me about dad now as if, oh, your father's just died. I'm so sorry. There's this shock on their faces and they're scared to approach me. But I began to lose my father five years ago. Yeah. When his dementia took in and he got ill health, what is fresh grief? I had a client during the week who came whose husband has just died and I was taking her history and he was diagnosed nine years ago. And I said, oh, so your grief started nine years ago. And her jaw dropped and she said, no one's ever put it like that. And it's so true. Every part of her body just kind of collapsed into that reality of I've been carrying this for nine years. Our life changed the day his diagnosis came. All our assumptions about the future were shattered on that day. Everything we knew to be steady ground was ripped from under us on that day. So it's not just about someone dying five months ago. It's this whole process of adapting to this new reality and what it means, what will it be like, the anticipation of it, the disenfranchisement of it, because we tend to not see illness as grief or loss. You're there in the despair and other people are saying, well, isn't it great? There's all of these new clinical trials and isn't it great? And isn't it great? Isn't it wonderful? And stay strong. And you're inside feeling like a a rabbit that's just had its skin ripped off you, (laughs) the dissonance with the world. So I suppose that's point number one, Megan, is acknowledging the experience. Like what is your unique experience What is it like for you and acknowledging that? Mm -hmm. So just finding out like, what is the reality of the loss? When did it begin? And finding a way to really acknowledge the depth and breadth of that for somebody. 
And it could be the shock of it. It could be the longevity of it. What's unique to this person? And sitting with that for a while, you know, there's so many different ways of working with grief. There's definitely just the, the sitting with in the pit with that person who is like that scared rabbit with no skin showing up to that, not being scared of that, bearing that with someone as they wail. We know that in grief, in this profound grief I'm talking about here, I'm not talking about the 60% who will be okay in time, but the, the, the percentage of us who really experience a profound loss, being able to show up and bear that extreme vulnerability, that extreme distress, without trying to fix it, without trying to change it, but showing even in myself, I feel this with you and can bear this. Letting someone even see their pain reflected in my face. Mm -hmm. It's not about sitting there stoically. It's also like it's having the wince of, oh, this is really hard. This is really painful. This runs really deep knowing how long to sit with that for and maybe it's part of a session but then also you know we don't want to stay like that to the very end also it's to come back to what are you going to do for yourself today there is part of you that knows how to resource yourself as well were you planning on seeing a friend or going for a walk or buying yourself that nice coffee and cake you know, so it's this is where the dual process comes in, sitting with the utter distress. And then also, well, what now for today? We need a break from that. We can't sit with that pure distress all the time. We need to dose it. We need to break from that. So it's like helping the people we're supporting to find this oscillation from the deep grief to now I've got to go and make dinner for my kids again, (laughs) or now I've got to show up to work, or now I've got to put on another face. So we'll go back and forth from there. For some people, it's accepting the loss. Sometimes I have people who are six months, 12 months, 18 months going, I just still can't believe he's dead. You know, so how do we sit with them and accept that reality, which it could be because there was a shock or a trauma or they didn't see their body? How do we go back to the time of the death and unpack it and give it space and unpack the trauma or the shock if there is one so that other memories can start to come in? So it's not just, I still can't believe that happened. How do we unpack it so that the acceptance of the reality can begin to happen? Sometimes we need to confront that lack of acceptance and help people come to a place of acceptance before they can truly begin to mourn and wail and weep. For some people that weeping comes years later. Weeping is not necessary for everybody who's grieving either. I know for me, the biggest manifestation of my grief since my father's death is not so much crying, it's rage. Yes. You know, I'm feeling tense and angry and that's kind of hard because everyone wants to show up when you're sitting there crying and put their arm around you and be the savior. 
but there's a lot fewer people who want to show up when you're being a tetchy bitch, you know, um, yeah. there's, there's a lot fewer people who will show up and put up with that for you. And that is all part of grief, you know, and, and, and that's part of the message we have to get out there is, you know, grief has so many different shapes and so many different emotions and it's a process that's multifaceted. Even what you just said, which I think is really important and part of, you know, the psycho ed that I'm hoping people will help us with in this podcast. I have a gentleman whose mother had been sick for a very, very long time. There were just zero tears when she died. He can cry about other things, but there were zero tears. And so he had this sort of metacognition, this processing of judgment about himself. And also what might that mean about his relationship with his mother? But to point out that it's not as though there wasn't any emotional energy, right? He had, he was someone who went to her home and spent hours and hours and hours, even though he could have hired a service, going through every one of her items, making sure that he rehomed them to people where she would have wanted them to go. When I said to him, that is your grief work. When you think about, you weren't overwhelmed with sadness, but you were overwhelmed with the wanting, you know, to put a meaning behind her things. And so taking those things and that made him very emotional to realize that he had sort of this instinctive way of being able to take the energy inside of him that needed a landing place, but it didn't include tears. And that's, that is a concept that people, I think, are still coming to understand that when people say to me, it's really weird, I started painting after my sister died. It's actually not weird. That's where your grieving energy wanted to, wanted to manifest itself in the arts, even just sort of asking questions. And one of the questions I use is just sort of like, do you have any, do you have an instinct about where this new energy, whatever it feels like anger. I would, I anger. I had anger for like a year. I'm not somebody that people would, I think normally describe as angry or snappy. It was, it was hard on my people to have me be, you know, short tempered and irritable to be able to point out to people that you could be sitting in your bed and crying, or you could be sort of an irritable bitch for, you know, yeah. a year. Yeah. But to be able to point that out so that people understand, you know, what you are carrying right now is the grieving process and everyone would expect that. And which is different maybe than the traumatic grief, right? The traumatic grief looks very overwhelming and might need more intervention. This might not, it might not draw attention from the general public, but your family might know, boy, you know, she's really irritable or, you know, she's being unreasonable. I think just what you're saying there, actually, Megan, about the meaning making and that clients with his mom's clothes, it's making me remember two weeks ago cleaning out my father's house. And we had this old sofa. My parents had got it as a wedding gift. So it was 60 years old and it was really low down. And all the cushions were burst, right? You'd sit in this and you'd be like sideways because you've <laughs> fallen through the bottom of it. And, you know, dad would repair it. And we all hated this bloody sofa, but we had it throughout our whole life. At some stage, I bought them a new sofa, which was kind of high up and easier to manage. And we stored this old one upstairs because it was sentimental to them. They didn't want to get rid of it. So when Skip, my brothers were like, yay, the green sofa. And I was like, no that is not you're not breaking that up it's not going in the skip please let me try and find it a home and 
you know, I spent the whole morning then on this zero wayside, you know, mid-century antique chic sofa. Someone wanted one chair and someone else wanted another bit. And I was just, no, until this one girl came and she said, I'm doing an upholstery uh, course and I'm looking for a product. I think it's fabulous. And I was just so grateful helping her put it in the back of her van and actually seeing the beauty of it and the legs and stuff. But that to me was so important not to chop that up and put it in a skip. And then there was another sort of 70s style sofa set that my mother had bought in an auction room and none of us wanted it. And it was in the shed, but I still didn't want to put it in the skip. And I kept saying to my brother's please don't chop it up. Can we just leave it there at the site for now? And again, some young baker guy came and picked it up with both of them. I said, here's my number. Please just text me a photo and show me what you've done with it. And he was like, I'm going to cover it in blue tweed. And, you know, when she left, she left 20 euro. And she was like, I know it's nothing, but it was something meaningful. And he left, he was a baker. He left us some bread on the, the doorstep and these little micro exchanges turn out to be a really big part of the grieving process. That was a choice moment. We could have bunged it up, stiff upper lip, thrown it in the skip, I am okay with this, or we can just pause and go, what really do I want to happen? You know, one other little story. I haven't been crying a lot for my father. It's been touchy and angry is mostly what I feel. But I was driving down the motorway the other day, you know, just kind of at ease. In front of me, there was a motorbike, a motorcycle, and he was trying to get through. And there was a van in the way. And at some point, the van, there was this guy in a leather jacket smoking a cigarette. At some point, he noticed the motorcycle and he pulled over to give it space to go by. And the motorcycle went by and just kind of looked into the van and gave him a wave. And the guy with the cigarette topped his cap at the motorbike going down and I burst out crying. (laughs) I just started going, oh my God, humans are so nice. (laughs) And I just had this moment of, and I'm even upset thinking about it now, not upset, I'm emotional and touched of, God, there is such kindness around the place. And it's lovely to notice it. And I think in our grief, we, when we lose love, we need love. I think that's what that was for me was like, I've lost the person who loved me the most in the world. And it's so lovely to see love and feel love. And this was the love of strangers on the motorway, but This is why the cards matter. The sharing stories matter. The taking time with the bereaved matters. We have lost something we love. And if 50 people can each give us a drop of love, it goes some way in filling that void. Mm, I love that so much. Partly because that little story, that's just a little life story, those two guys on the motorway. I think part of what you're talking about is the sensitivity, the achiness of the experience of being a human, and that sometimes that is illuminated by the experience of loss, right? I am just in that space that where I am more sensitive, and we, we know that our brains track for the negative 
and the intensity of sort of threat. But there are these moments where we are just intensely available to walk outside. I took a walk out in my street. Everything smells like lilac and earth and spring. I grew up on a farm. I mean, I was grieving, but I was also experiencing the planet as this incredibly beautiful place. If you take it back to the idea of energy, the, the wisteria in my neighbor's house is definitely older than I am. The energy that that plant has been taking in and giving out in scent and beauty forever is valuable. My mom, when we cleaned out her closet in her house, she had done dollhouses when she was a much younger woman. And we found this like treasure of tiny little dollhouse furniture that had yet to be constructed. And it was not actually valuable. My brother was like, let's just throw it away. I couldn't do it. Because I remembered what it was like for her to get those things and buy those things and make those things. And I had a similar experience of being able to rehome them. That woman took all those items. We are bonded and connected now based on that. I think that's what I mean in terms of grief, right? Like there is the crying and the emotional sad reaction to the fact that you have lost, but it doesn't rest there. We have agency around how do we continue to hold the memory and hold the energy of this person. Some of that can be like on the motorway where we show up and are just so grateful that humans are good people and they're good to each other. There's a giant cancer organization in this country, Susan G. Komen Cancer Foundation, and that was put together by her sister who, you know, the legacy that she wanted of that experience of loving her sister was to create this incredible foundation that raises money for cancer. Most of us aren't going to go on to that. Most of us aren't going to drop our lives and start a foundation in our person's name. But, you know, if you go to any park, there are benches with someone's name on a plaque because that person loved to sit in this park. It can be small. It can be small. Dad was not quite bed bound, but he would have spent a lot of time bed chair, bed chair and living in his living room for the past few years. And outside the window, we had bird feeders. During the last three weeks of his death, I took work off and I moved out of my home and into his home. And I was with him all the time, apart from, you know, a couple of hours twice. But how I would communicate with him a lot of the time was I would give him a narrative of what was going on at the bird feeder. The squirrel's back, it's upside down. Oh my God, he just knocked off a blue tit. And, you know, this was like the narration of what's happening outside the window. And it became really precious. A few days after dad died, I went to a garden center with my friend and I bought three bird feeders, little wooden houses. They're just outside the window here where I'm sitting actually. This was one of my continuing bonds. I want to make a garden there for him as well. But I put up these bird feeders and filled them with nuts and nothing has been at them. And it's been really bugging me. It's like, hang on, this is meant to be full of squirrels and blue tits and the same as dad's house. Just the other day, I noticed outside my cabin, there's a blue tit nesting and it's finally found the bird feeders at the other side of the garden. And I swear to God, you'd swear I had just crossed a marathon line when I saw, yay, the blue tit has found it. And another micro moment, but it was so meaningful to me that I'm sitting outside my window looking at birds in the feeder and somehow that love of nature and that cycle of life is going on. It's continuing. Yeah. 
you know, and it will always remind me of sitting with dad at his French doors, looking out oh, at his bird feeders. So it doesn't cool. have to be a cancer foundation, you know? No. I'm curious, you know, so we're talking about what I think what I think is possible, right? So, which is beautiful. There can be the early experience, whether it's nine years into dementia diagnosis. And so you've been carrying grief and loss for nine years or sudden death, you get a phone call, this just happened. All of those experiences are different. But part of what you and I are sort of talking about is over time, we learn to carry the loss and the loss is not just loss that we want to also feel the love. We want to look out onto a bird feeder and think, oh my God, I narrated like a sports show, but you know, the squirrel activity for my dad and his, has that mattered? And I think most of us get there on our own. Trauma therapists, what I'm thinking about is people who are really having trouble are ones that their memories and their experience are, I hate to use the word stuck, but I'm going to use it for lack of something better, are sort of stuck in the death right? So that PTSD of only imagining the time you got the phone call, seeing the body and that you can't move to the positive because you're really in that stuck spot. So one question, I'm wondering if you would speak on this for a minute. I get a lot of, and I see it on grief and loss boards. Should I go to therapy? When should I go to therapy? When do I have to go to therapy? When should I recommend my mother goes to therapy? And I do think inside that is the bias that therapy is for people who are having problems as opposed to kind of a gift that you could give yourself at a time, at a hard time. People come to me with trauma and I say that's trauma when I'm talking about treating and I'm talking about EMDR and body centered therapies so that we can move the energy through so that the only memory that you're having about your dad isn't his dead body that we want to be able to move back to the space of love and not just, you know, in the loss. But I'm curious for you, when people ask that question or are wondering whether or not therapy would be a good, um, do you believe because there is this 60% of folks who kind of, you know, they figure it out on their own. Do you believe it's good for most people? Should it be something that just folks who are really having trouble? Where do you, where do you land on that? Yeah, well, I mean, the research says that most people do not need it. Most people do not need grief therapy or grief counseling. Um, the research shows that 60% of people, I think it's George Bonanno, who I'm actually meeting this evening, which I'm delighted about. He says that we overlook this resilience too much. I'm kind of somewhere in the middle. I don't, I'm not the option B kind of person where it's let's just be resilient and kick right. this away and just make good choices and sort of jump over our grief. Not at all. But the research shows us, and he's done rigorous, good research with large samples. 60% of people will be okay. Most people just need community support, family and friends around, someone minding the kids dropping in a dinner and you know doing what we do ideally when somebody dies most people will be okay with that with information acknowledgement of their loss 
and people to care for them in their community. And we that that will be enough for 60% of people. 30% of people will need something additional. So that's where maybe level one support, if you like, isn't available or isn't enough. So maybe I've had a miscarriage and nobody really wants to talk about miscarriage. So I'm not finding that support in my community or my lover has died. My community didn't know I was in a relationship. I'm not getting that support. Therefore, I meet, might need extra help. My child has died. This wasn't part of my plan. My assumptions are shattered. I need extra help to understand the profound experience that's racking through my body right now. And then we know that 10% of people will have what's called prolonged grief disorder, where really the grief remains acute, remains really high and screaming. Maybe that one memory is on repeat two years later, three years later, five years later. So, you know, that's sort of broadly speaking. I don't see those 60%. I don't see people who have a grief experience like I'm having right now because they don't need the extra support. So we do need to listen to the literature to answer your question, Megan. Most people do not need it. Some people do, but equally they need it from somebody who's educated in grief. not just a counsellor or a psychotherapist or a social worker. They need it from someone who's grief educated and probably trauma informed as well, because those 30 percent, there's probably a drop of trauma in there as well, if not a significant truckload. So if people don't have access to supports in their community or their family or friends are just somehow not available or not enough, then it is indicated but probably not in the first few months after a loss. Also research shows that for some people, grief counseling or grief therapy can actually be detrimental in those early days. So we do need to look at what the research shows us rather than just what we think or believe. I have seen people in my clinic who come and they say, you know, we're okay. Our friends just think we need support. And I'll say, well, come if you think you. More often than not, they don't. So we're very quick to pathologize grief. And I don't think we should do that. This is a new theory or model, but this this idea of the spectrum of loss, we really need to go, okay, well, where does this land on the spectrum and and what support is necessary? But grief should be a normal, natural part of life. And when it isn't, when it doesn't feel that way, when it feels like your experience after your mom died or my experience after marriage separation, we need to look at what's going on here. It's not just the grief or the loss. It's, it's other things that are being triggered that are making this experience too much to carry for this person. Yeah. So that's when support yeah. is needed. It's when the outside experience feels too much for the internal resources. Then we need help to build our internal resources and also diminish the power external trigger. I think you just described it really beautifully and I appreciate you answering the question so thoroughly. And in my experience, which I've shared with my listeners, 
there's absolutely underlying trauma um, and trauma systems. I have a, an academic background, so I believe in the literature and I believe in the studies. And I used to be the person that collected data for studies. So I have this very skeptical mind around the paradigm that you've just described, which is it can't be that we have a culture that does this so poorly that people describe in common conversation, feeling isolated, like they're hurried back to work, that people don't want to talk about it. I feel like there are more people that look like they are functioning and doing okay, but are having a silent experience of under support because it can't really be both. When you're in the room with folks who are going to work, still raising their children, still doing their jobs, they will report to you that they are under supported and not. Therapy was a different word. Like when do you get support? When do you see community? When do you go look for it yourself? I bet we would hear from people that they want more of that than they currently. Absolutely. But I think, you know, both you and I have had really difficult loss experiences. And so it's easy for us to to go, maybe this was my experience, maybe see it more, you know, notice it more. I think this experience I'm having as a result of my father's death is making me realize, well, George Banana was right. It's not always traumatic or really difficult or really hard. We need more kindness in the world. Without a doubt, we need to be supportive of each other. The way our societies are set up where we're all living in these houses with doors in them and we're not in community. Yeah. That's lonely anyway, without putting grief on top of it. I have a new neighbor who's just moved in and this won't mean anything to America, but here in Ireland, we have a cafe called the happy pair and it's just up the road from my house. And there's two lads, Stephen and Dave who run it. It's a vegetarian cafe and they're on Instagram. They're a great success. But one of them, Dave, has just moved in next door to me. And every couple of nights, there's a knock on the door and he hands in a bag of scones or, you know, a dinner that was left over. And oh, my God, it's like this is just so lovely. Like just this sense of community, the sense of care. We all need more of that every day, and especially when we're grieving. So without a doubt that, and not everybody needs therapy, and therapy with the properly trained person can really help those who are still suffering, you know, greatly two, three years after a loss. No one has to keep on suffering like that. So there's so many different truths My hope, particularly in COVID, is that communities are going to add more, less formal, but more support so that people who need to need that social connection so that they don't feel isolated and they don't feel alone, maybe not even to talk about grief, but just to be a human in the world connection. Um, This has been an unbelievable hour. I am really, really grateful for 
all your wisdom. Do you want to just give us a little nugget about what you're doing out there in the world so we can know to look for it? I'd love to. A lot of people listening to my podcast, when it was originally intended to be for people who were grieving, so they'd get to understand grief a little bit more by hearing other people's stories. It turned out that a lot of doctors and psychotherapists and nurses and counselors were listening and were messaging me saying, I'm learning so much. It's so educational. That's when I decided, let's let's build an explicitly educational project because there's not enough grief education out there. So many local courses and psychotherapy courses are still teaching the stages of grief by Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. She did amazing work in the field. They were always for people who learned they had a terminal illness. There are no stages of grief. There are not five stages of grief. There isn't a sixth stage of grief either. There are no stages of grief. There are no norms. There are no standards. It is not predictable. It is so different for everyone. It can be beautiful experience for some people when someone they love dies, and it can be damaging for somebody else. And there's a whole spectrum of experiences. So what my grief education project aims to do is bring in lots of these different perspectives Grief is just one thing. Ambiguous loss. Is it disenfranchised grief? Is it cumulative grief? Is it compounded grief? Is it prolonged grief? There are so many different types of grief. There's so many things to understand. There is so much to know. It's fascinating. It is relevant to each of us. If we are living, breathing human beings, we know grief and This project, it's not, we are the experts, you are the students, it is us, we are all humans here together, learning about our common human experience of grief and sharing this wisdom so that more people can just feel that warm hand on their back when they're having a really shitty, lonely time. It's about just educating people so that we can be kind, better, more informed, and show up in a different way to other people who are having a hard time so that lives aren't ruined because of grief, because they are ruined because of grief in some circumstances. That's what we're trying to do. It's really affordable. It's apesofgrief.com. It's only 199 euro. It's worth several thousand, but I want people to be able to get this information. And so buy it, learn, give us your feedback. We're going to grow it, adapt it improve it as the months and years go on and um, but it, finally it's a hub of relevant evidence-based grief education with people from every continent contributing we'll put it in the in the show notes so that people can get their hands on it i am so excited about it myself because it, i know who's helped you and participated in it. It's really important just to have all that information in one place. And I know you've worked incredibly hard on it. So I can't wait to see all of it. Thank you so much. There's actually a photographer at my front door coming to take my photo for the paper. They're doing a feature. Oh my goodness, Liz. Thank you so much for your time today. Good luck with everything. And I know you, Megan. Take care. Good luck with your podcast. Thanks, Liz. Take care. Bye-bye.